I would encourage you today to take your Bibles and turn yet again to the book of Amos. Uh, I've made it pretty clear over the last few years, but, you know, I know this is a holiday weekend and it should be a a rah-rah America, but I really believe what I prayed. We are citizens of heaven first, and we ought to learn about our citizenship in heaven because if I am who I am, a citizen of heaven, I will be the best citizen of whatever nation the Lord places me in. I was thinking about my sermon this week. I was thinking about how to begin. That's, that's, there, there's one thing that they taught us in school. Your introduction and your conclusion are always the most difficult parts of the sermon. Uh, I would add, thirdly, it's the title. Uh, my, my mentor used to say he would, if he had his wishes, he, he would title every sermon, God, the World, and Other Stuff. Um, but as I was thinking about this particular sermon, I was reminded of a little thing, that little piece that was published well over 30 years ago. When I start to read it, some of you will recognize it immediately. It it falls under the category, what's old is new again. Uh, There are some simple truths in what I'm about to read that ring true today. And once this came out, back it, it, it went as viral as anything could go back in the 1990s. We weren't even saying in 1990 something went viral. In fact, I learned that that happened. That phrase was first used in 1995, and it was used from uh, as far as talking about something going viral over the Internet, and it was used <clears throat> from the cartoon South Park. Don't go watch it. <laughs> so listen as I read this. This is just something very simple. It's entitled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten by Robert Fulgham. All I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. All I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sand pile at Sunday school. These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out in the world, watch for traffic, hold hands, stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup? The roots go down and the plant goes up and nobody really knows how or why, but we're all like that. Goldfish and hamsters and white mice and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup, they all die. And so do we. Remember the Dick and Jane books? 
you got to be pretty old, by the way, to remember those. Remember the Dick and Jane books? The first word you learned, the biggest word of all? Look! Everything you need to know is in there somewhere. The golden rule and love and basic sanitation. Ecology and politics and equality and sane living. Take any of those items and extrapolate it into sophisticated adult terms and apply it to your family life or your work or your government or your world and it holds true, clear, and firm. Think what a better world it would be if all, the whole world, had cookies and milk about 3 o'clock every afternoon and then lay down with our blankies for a nap. Or if all governments had a basic policy to always put things back where they found them and clean up their own mess. And it's still true. No matter how old you are, when you go out into the world, it's best to hold hands and stick together. I read that, and I smiled. I remember it from years ago. And, and Robert Fulgham hits on something there. In many ways, the principles of living in this world are quite simple. Uh, we've emphasized over and over. I, I prayed it this morning. It's, in, it's on the front cover of your bulletin. Uh, the, the basic principles of living, if we're really going to follow Christ, come down to Love God and love others. That's the basic principles. It's, it's not that difficult. And I can't control what others do. But I can control what I do. Now we're going to be in Amos 5 today. And as we get to Amos 5, and actually this kind of is true throughout the minor prophets and very much so into the New Testament throughout the Bible there are often times when you're going to read things and you go, well, didn't he just say that? Doesn't that sound familiar? we got to remember that Amos did not always, one, give his oracles or speeches at the same place. Secondly, there weren't any recording devices around. So sometimes it may seem like he's repeating himself because, in fact, he is because he's speaking to a different audience. Real quick, in the New Testament... We have that familiar passage in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's reiterated in the Gospel of Luke, but in Luke, he says that Jesus went up or went on and was at a, a level place. They call it the Sermon on the Plain. They're not two different sermons, same sermon, different audiences. So the words may not be exactly the same, but the themes are going to be themes we've seen before. Someone once told me repetition was the key to learning, and I think they were right. And 2,800 years ago, God's people needed some repetition. Sometimes you and I do too. In the first half of Amos 5 that we're going to deal with today, we're going to discover more about God's heart. And in so doing, we're going to find a simple path to follow in learning to live a life that follows God. And it's as simple as the things we learned in kindergarten. Join with me as I look at Amos chapter 5 and listen as I read the first couple verses. Amos says, Hear this word, Israel, 
this lament I take up concerning you. Amos is reflecting the words of God. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. Amos starts out with a lament. A lament is a word that's used throughout Scripture. Uh, One third of the Psalms are laments. The, The word lament is a term that's sometimes used when one is grieving over the loss of someone or something close. In 2020, if you'll recall, we did a whole series in the fall over the idea of of lament. And we discovered that in the Bible, laments sometimes begin with a sense of hopelessness. Laments ask that question that's sometimes unanswerable, why? A lament says, God, where are you now? And, And lament is one pouring out their heart, their grief, their frustration to God. And and sometimes that lament leads to understanding more of who God is. And so Amos, speaking the words of God, begins with a lament. And and in reality, all of this passage through verse 17 of Amos chapter 5 is a lament. And it's very important for you and me to understand that God laments. You see, some of us get the idea that if I do something wrong, God's going to zap me. Now, you, you, have we heard that? Oh, you know, in fact, uh, I was a youth pastor, so I do all kinds of crazy things. And somebody says something, and I go, whoa, put my lightning rod up, right? Uh, God zaps us. No, God doesn't do that. In fact, when I see this lament, I understand something. Sin that you and I commit doesn't necessarily make God as angry as it does. It breaks his heart. God grieves over your sin and mine. And God wants you to know how much he grieves over our sin. And so Amos says, Amos says, hear this word, Israel, this lament. And then he gives this very disturbing word picture. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. The picture is a picture of a bride before her wedding day. And she's fallen. In other words, she's died. She's died before her wedding day. Can you imagine something so heartrending, so grievous? And not only has she died, she's died in the wilderness and they can't even find her. So... God is saying, as much as that leaves you empty, as much as that makes you struggle, as much as you are like, can't figure that out, that's what sin does to him. Sin breaks his heart. Sin causes him to grieve. Sin leaves him with a deep sense of loss that's almost describable. And then God goes on and he tells the nation, sin is self-destructive. Look at verse 3. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Israel. 
Your city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. God says sin is so self-destructive that it will destroy your army. So your army that has a a thousand will end up with ten percent. Ninety percent will be destroyed. Sin destroys everything. And God is trying to show the nation, you think you're powerful, you think you're strong, but your sin will destroy you. You see, the point that I want you to remember this morning is simply this. God grieves over our sin. God grieves over sin because it destroys relationships. God grieves over sin because it destroys lives. God grieves over sin because it destroys trust. It destroys families. Sin breaks God's heart. But there's an answer. How do I not break God's heart? How do I not enter this, go down this path of destruction? And against the backdrop of this lament, Amos gives and some things that are kind of compare and contrast to show that there are ways to follow God. But remember, there's not a lot of wiggle room. You either follow Him or you don't. You either trust Him or you don't. And so in verses 4 and 5, he begins with these words. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly, surely go into exile. And Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Several years ago, my wife and I at, at the church we used to be part of uh, sat there one night when a a gentleman, in fact, he and I have reconnected through LinkedIn, but uh, he was a great pianist, uh, and, and he sat one night and he played a, a special number for our church, and, and he introduced it by saying, this is going to be Jesus Loves Me around the world. And so he began by playing that very familiar tune, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. We are little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. And so he played that tune. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And then he played it again in kind of a jazz style. And then he played it again in a Latin style. And then he kind of amped it up in the the masters of Europe, and he played it in a very classical music style. And then he played it again, and and as I and this is how I recall it. I may not be giving you exactly right, but it was Asian. It was kind of had that Asian feel. And then he ended it with kind of a Western theme. And then he brought it back the same. And and no matter what theme it was, the the truth of that little song kept going on. See, God gives His people a very simple. Basic, profound truth. He says, seek me and live. He's going to say that again in verse 6. He's going to say something similar in verse 14. The basic, simple truth is, seek God and live. And in verses 4 and 5, the principle is, seek God instead of religiosity. Now, the word seek is a term that carries with it the meaning of investigate. Uh, it, it's something to seek with care. It's to be intent. 
It's that same intensity that you might have if you have misplaced your car keys and you need to go somewhere right away. Now, I realize we live in the the age of push-button starters, and if your car keys are in your pocket or your purse, then you're good, you're golden, right? But what if you go out to the car and you push the button and nothing starts? Where are my keys? Where do I leave my keys? You've been there. And we are to have that same kind of intensity as we seek relationship with God. God is the object. Seek God and the result is life. Another way to translate that would be, seek me in order to live. Very specific. Very intentional. And that's the basic message of the Bible. Seek God, you're going to find out what life is all about. Seek God and you will find out what real life is. Every person is searching for something that will give them meaning and significance. We all want to, in some way, make a difference. Years ago, I was talking to an individual, and she was telling me how she volunteered every week at an animal shelter. And you know what? That is amazing work. That is good work. There's nothing wrong with that. But then she said this. She, this was the, the sum total of her spiritual life. She said, Those animals in that shelter, they're my church. I get that. I get that the fact that at the animal shelter, there was a community of people that she had gotten to know. I get that it feels good to see this animal that nobody else wants, that they put it in a shelter and and you get to walk it. and and, And there's a bond that develops. I get that. But I think... God's message to that person would would be something like this. Thank you for caring about my creation. Thank you for being kind to those animals. But allow me to show you that there's even better life out there. Seek me and live. Because life is more than about just having a good feeling. Good feelings don't last. Animal shelters close. Animals get adopted out. Some animals get euthanized. Seek me and live. Amos mentions two places that we looked at last week, right? He says, don't go to Gilgal, don't go to Bethel. And and he also says, don't even journey to Beersheba. Let me give you a brief reminder. Remember we said last week, Gilgal and Bethel, places that were very important in the history of Israel. Bethel, the place where Abraham met God, the place where Jacob met God, very important. Gilgal, place where they crossed over the Jordan back when Joshua was leading them. They, they put some stones of remembrance to remember God brought them there. And those places had kind of become tourist, religious tourist attractions. But then he mentions a third place, Beersheba. Beersheba is at the furthest point south of the borders of Judah. And apparently, some of the people from Israel were journeying all the way down to Beersheba to kind of have a a religious experience with God. And the, the, the point that I believe is being made here is 
You don't get more of God at Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba than you can get of God right where you are. You know, there isn't more of God in this room than there is of God when you leave here today and go with your family. You have all of God that you're going to get residing in you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit indwells us. You've got all of God that you're going to get. You can't get more of God by going to a place. I know some of us have certain places in our lives that are just very special. They, they evoke emotion. They, and sometimes people say, I've got to go there. I, I just I, That's where I meet God. And I'm thinking... You know, I can meet God in my office. I can meet God when I come here sometimes in the morning. I sit by myself right here. I I have an encounter with God. When I'm studying in my office, I find myself sometimes putting my books and my Bible down and just backing up. No, I am in the presence of God. A few years ago, a friend of mine invited me to go with him. We had been there a couple times before to go to a place called Eagle Ridge out in Galena, Illinois. Eagle Ridge is home to a golf course called The General. It happens to be one of the top 100 courses in America. And we went out there in the fall, off-season, and he said, I want to take you out. I want you to, we want to play The General. So we actually went out and played a couple other courses there. But I remember being at the signature hole of The General. The signature hole of general is the number, it's the fifth hole. The T is 180 feet above the fairway. The change of elevation from T to fairway is 180 feet. So we stood there. You've got the Mississippi River over there. You've got the kind of the rolling hills in the Galena area. You're there in the fall. It was like second week of October. Perfect weather. Beautiful. I mean, it was beautiful. And we tee off and then we go down the serpentine cart path, driving of course, and uh, found our balls on the fairway and we're getting ready to hit the second shot and all of a sudden he goes, Scott, look. And I turned and I looked and there was a blaze autumn maple tree and the sun had just poked out from behind a cloud and that tree lit up. We just, we stood there for a moment. It was a holy moment. We just stood there. We're just, wow. And he said, do you think God lit that tree up just for us? I said, I'll take it now. I'll, I'll say that now. Now, you know what? We finished that round of golf. I've never been back to Galena, to Eagle Ridge since then. Never played another round of golf there. I don't go back every year and go to that blaze autumn maple and put a little shrine I had an encounter. My friend and I worshiped God for just a moment as God lit up his beautiful nature and we were just enjoying it. You know, and and I'm going to tell you, I thought in that moment, God, if you're really here, let me have a hole in one on the next par three. God did not answer my prayer, but he was still there. God is saying to the nation, you're practicing religiosity. And see, we need to seek God instead of religiosity. Uh, Religiosity is making that special place in your life such a sacred place that you have to go back there because that's the only place you're going to find God. Religiosity is, is 
just doing a bunch of stuff. You know, and I'm going to tell you, there's, you may have special places in your life, and I think they're great, but if you make that place a shrine where only God exists, then you're missing the point. God isn't limited to a location. Relegating to a God is, as to a location is religiosity. My own definition of religiosity is this, the outward practice of different activities which have no effect on my daily behavior or attitudes. You see, if I come and I do a bunch of religious practices, but then I go out and I cheat my neighbor, I haven't, there's no, there's nothing there. If I go out, if I come and do a bunch of, if I go to a special place, I say, oh, there's God. And I, I stop at that blaze autumn maple tree. And I'm just like, this is where God is. And then, and then I go out and I treat my family like dirt. That's religiosity. It's empty. There's nothing there. God says, seek me. See, he goes on. He says, seek the Lord and live. I'm getting ahead of myself. I won't get there. He says, the the reality is real life, real meaning, real significance, real value is found in relationship with God, not in a place, not in an activity. I love singing. My wife will tell you, I bust out in song. I mess up songs. I sing the lyrics that seem to come from my heart. They might not be the ones the author wrote, but I sing those. I love singing. There's nothing wrong with singing. There's nothing wrong with singing songs of worship. She's retired now, but one of my secretaries back in Indiana, one day she had to call and ask me a question. I answered the phone. She goes, hey, do you still bust out in song? I said, yes, I do. I love to sing. It's great singing. I, I, I enjoy volunteering. I enjoy helping other people. Uh, I think you ought to read your Bible. I think it's important to pray. Those are all amazing things. But all of those are amazing when they're done in the context of relationship. In the context of relationship with God. And I would add, in context for us today, in relationship with God through Jesus. Amos says, don't, don't go to Gilgal. It's going to go into exile. Don't go to Bethel. It's going to re- be reduced to nothing. Don't do these religious practices for the sake of religiosity. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. This is the second time he said that. Seek the Lord and live. Why? Because if you don't seek the Lord and live, he is going to allow the consequences of our sin to take root. He will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire and it will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes 
and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Not only should we seek God instead of religiosity, we need to seek God instead of wealth and power. And I know what the cynic says, oh yeah, what's God going to do? What if I don't seek God? What if I just go ahead and live life on my own terms? I see so many people doing that. They seem to be getting along fine. But God reminds us repeatedly in the Bible that there will come a time of accountability. There is coming a time where in one way, shape, or form, we will face God. And God says, you can choose your own way. You can do that. God gives us the freedom to completely choose our own path. But he reminds us that the day is coming when he will purify everything. One of the things that was going on in Israel was the perversion of justice and righteousness. It's very interesting if you go back to the law that the people had. You could go back to the book of Deuteronomy and read verses, chapter 24, verses 17 to 22, and you'll be reminded that, you, that God's people are supposed to be concerned about others, especially others who have less. You go to Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 28, and Jeremiah defines justice as defending the rights of the poor. When you and I are truly seeking God, a very natural outgrowth of that is to care about those who are less fortunate than we are. In the middle of all of this, God reminds us of his power. Look at verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, literally that would be he who made the seven stars, because that's what the Pleiades uh, constellation was made of, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Well, what's he saying? The God that we're talking about is the God who created the constitutions, the constellations and put them where he wants them, and they stay there. The God that we're talking about is the God who created the evaporation cycle and allows it to continue time and again. This is the God who created this earth. God is fully aware of the rotation of the earth. God is fully aware of how things live, work. And, how, and God says, seek me, the one who is in complete power, and you will live. But Israel was doing the opposite. Israel was perverting justice. Why is this a lament? Because the court system in Israel had become a sham. People could not get justice or righteousness. And that became bitter, especially for the poor. The poor were forced to just live with the injustice. Notice what he says here. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. That was coming from the leadership in the nation. They didn't want truth. They didn't want justice unless in some way the truth and the justice they wanted benefited them. See, the reality in Israel at that time is you could buy the judge if you had the money. And not only that, 
the poor were abused. Look at verse 11. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. To the best that we can discern, what we think was happening was in the nation, this came from the the book of Deuteronomy, you see it in the book of Ruth, when a a wealthy person owned a field and there was it was harvest time they were told in the law to leave a little bit of the uh, grain off to the side here to when when you know when you're harvesting with the scythe you know you're not going to pick up everything leave it let the poor people come and glean So the poor people would go into the field and they would glean and this is the food they could get for their family. And as they're walking out of the field, the owner is there and he says, you owe me for taking the grain out of my field. Pay it to me. And if they couldn't do it, well then, I'm sorry, this grain all becomes mine. And then with the money that they sold that grain, he would go and add on to his house and build his mansion and plant his vineyard and get wealthier. And God says, I see that. I know how offensive your sins are. And God says, you're going to build these mansions, but your sin grieves me so much, I'm not going to let you live in them. You're going to plant these vineyards, and they're going to grow. It takes vineyards several years to produce grapes that can produce wine. You're going to plant these vineyards, but... You're not going to get to drink the wine from them. You're not going to enjoy the benefits because they're all planted and built on the backs of the people that you should have cared for. Verse 12, God says, I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. Keep that in mind. Nothing escapes God's notice. Nothing. He's aware of how you and I treat the less fortunate. He's aware of how you and I talk about others when they're not around. He's aware of how you and I manage information and manipulate people. And if he wouldn't let his chosen people get away with it, neither will you and I. God says, pursue me. Go back all the way to verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Israel didn't get away with it. We won't get away with it. Now there's an interesting verse right at the end of this section. Therefore the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Verse 13. I I struggled with that. Wait a minute. Shouldn't we stand up? Shouldn't we speak truth to power? Shouldn't we stand up? Well, there are times when we do need to stand up. There are times when we do need to speak up. And there are times when we need to understand that maybe our words aren't going to make a difference and we need to be wise and choose our timing. Uh, I was wrestling with that years ago when I preached this passage and that in the middle of wrestling that I had to run an errand to the grocery store. So I'm there in the grocery store and my stuff was on, uh, in, on the conveyor belt, person in front of me. And as I recall, they, they had a bill that was like $51.32 and they handed the clerk three twenties. I don't know what happened to the clerk. I don't know if they got confused or something. But when it was all said and done, they handed them back their 75 cents and change and then they handed them a 20 instead of nine ones. 
And the person took the 75 cents and change, and they looked at that 20, and they stuffed it in their pocket and got their stuff, and they left. Now, I could have spoken up in that moment, but I had no authority. I had no authority there. I, I didn't know that person. And I realized this is one of those times where my speaking up may have created more of a problem than just letting it go. And I wrestled with that. God says there are times when the prudent let God take care of it. Because it might be bigger than us. There are times we speak up. There are times when the prudent are quiet. Remember, Amos is in a foreign land. He's telling the people they're sinning. He's there by direct call of God. There are times when you will stand up and speak. There are times when you will cast a vote. There are times when you're going to call somebody to accountability. But there are times to let God do His work in His way. Amos finishes this up by our third, seek. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Seek good, not evil. You see, if you're seeking God, you're seeking good. If you're seeking the Lord, you're seeking good. The only other way is to not seek good, to seek evil. And and Amos offers this cry for change and repentance. Listen, seek good and not evil that you may live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you just as you say He is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. Farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst. God says, if you don't change Israel, it's going to bring about wailing and mourning from all quarters. The nation was proud of the fact that God was with them, but they were ignorant of the fact that he was not for them in their current behavior. You see, I cannot engage in actively breaking God's law. I can't choose to not love God and not love people and somehow think that it's okay. Just because sometime in your past you prayed a prayer and asked Jesus in your heart does not give you a free pass to just go and live any way you want. God holds us accountable. So how do we pursue God? Amos says, love good. Good is found in loving your God with all your heart. Amos says, maintain justice in the courts. What was a national call for Israel? You and I have a great privilege to seek to, to seek and live justly, justly, to seek God and live justly. We have a great privilege to do that. We have a privilege in this country to vote. We just had a primary last week. We have a privilege in this country to, to be an informed and involved electorate. Not everybody gets to do that. And we ought to be. We ought to pray before we vote. We ought to ask God for wisdom. And I, and I tell you, don't just vote for a party. I'll, I'll quote, Luella knows him, I'll quote Bud. Used to live up in North Dakota. He and I were talking on the phone once. He said, Scott, I'm going to tell you. I used to be a Democrat because I thought they were for the labor. 
But I found out that they were just as crooked as anybody else. So I switched to being Republican. They were just as bad. So now, every time I go to the voting booth, I just write in Jesus. Because he's the answer. I just cast a vote for Jesus. (laughs) Oh, I loved him. He was great. I never met him face to face. We talked on the phone several times because of some family relationships. But, you know, that really kind of says it, doesn't it? Uh, there's a book in our library. You may want to read it someday. It's called Blinded by Might. It was written by conservative columnist Cal Thomas and uh, the late Ed Dobson, who used to be a pastor in Michigan. Those two men were the right-hand men to Jerry Falwell back in the 1970s and 80s in an organization called the Moral Majority. Their conclusion about politics is this. Politics is all about access to power. They say, you know, you can get in there and think, I'm going to go change something, I'm going to do something good, but you can't play the game unless you learn how to access power. Politics is not the answer. Yes, we ought to vote. Yes, we ought to be involved, but politics won't lead people to Jesus. God holds each one of us accountable. That's what he's saying here at the very end. When you hate evil and love good and maintain justice, then you are at least creating the atmosphere for God to have mercy. And he says, one day I am going to hold you accountable. And when I do, those who don't follow me will have wailing in the streets. What's the answer? It's so simple. Seek God and live. What does that look like? I ran across a letter written quite a few years ago by a young person who had gone on a mission trip to Kenya. And and her summary of the Kenyan believers is really what this whole passage is about. She said, It was so interesting to see their joy in all circumstances. They have so little, not even a change of clothes in many cases, yet they were still full of laughter and love. It impressed me how much they appreciated us and how it was such a privilege for them to meet fellow believers from a different country. The women all called me sister because they realized that the eternal ties are the ones that matter. To them, Christianity is truly a lifestyle. None of us can claim to be better Christians than them. They are spiritual giants living day to day on the balance of life and death and facing with absolute faith and trust in the omnipotence of God. Salvation and a relationship with God isn't a commodity. It's a privilege to be savored. If someone is sick or there's a need, their first reflex, in fact, their only recourse is to pray. God was closer and more real to me in the lives of these tribal Africans than in any experience I have yet had. The way they sang worship songs as they worked, seeing them pray over an infected eye and being asked to pray over the foot of a child brought me back to the root of Christianity. It reminded me that things like faith and love that seemed to get overlooked in my country where reason and intellect take over. Faith and love get overlooked when reason and intellect take over. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I think we need to keep it in balance. See, it's not about what you have. It's not about who you are. It's about God. Seek God and live. Father, thank you for your word this morning.
Thank you for simple truth. We complicate things. Help us to be people who live that simple truth. Seek God and live. Seek good and not evil. Seek the Lord and live. May that be who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.